Right, so as we do continue our sermon series, Westminster Shorter Catechism, we're looking at the different questions. Let's begin by renewing some of the reviewing some of the questions that we've already done. We'll recite them, the answers in unison as, as we are, um, with, uh, starting with question four today. We're going to s- skip over the first three. So, uh, beginning in question four in the Shorter Catechism. Question four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Question five. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. Question six. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Question 7. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His own will, whereby for His own glory He hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Question 8. How doth God execute His decrees? God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So those are the two ways that he carries out what he's planned, creating everything, and then in his providence, governing it and overseeing it, uh, bringing the things about that he wishes. And uh, the, the next two questions in the catechism, when we did last week and when we're doing this week, deal with creation in particular. So we'll uh, review the one we did last week first and then the one for this week. Question nine. What is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. And today, the second question about creation Question 10. How did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Now, this is a very marvelous thing that we have just said. We're going to look at God's marvelous work of creating man. But then we're going to look at the great problem that the things that we affirm here about man's creation do not seem to be true. And then we'll look at the solution to that problem, why it is that way and what is to be done about it, what is God going to do. So first we'll have our scripture reading from Genesis 1, 26-31, a passage that tells us in plain language, how God created man. Of course, we read last time in uh, Genesis as well, but looking at the whole creation account, but now we look specifically at the part where it tells about creating man. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, 
over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. You can see that our catechism summarizes quite well what we just read of the creation account, that God created man, male and female, after his own image and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. And what a marvelous thing this is. Three ways that we see that it's marvelous. First, the, the simple fact that God made us. That itself is marvelous. Just think of it. From eternity, there was only this glorious triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He was fully complete without us, full of wisdom, power, love, joy, goodness, purity, blessing, peace, the divine being possessed incredible beauty and perfection and glory. He was complete in himself and needed nothing else, but he decided to do something wonderful. He decided to create the universe. There was nothing at all to start with, nothing but himself. He thought, he thought all of this up, every single bit of it, that there should be a world that would sustain life, that it would be made of what we call material substances, that it would have chemicals and elements and properties, that it would have water and plants and birds and animals and a sun and moon in, in the heavens and with all the galaxies, and that there would be things like stones and heat and light and air and gravity and atoms and oceans, and that this world would have things visible and things invisible, and that it would have sounds and things that, that taste and smell and can be felt. And he made it so that one thing would be dependent upon another thing. And he made it marvelously complex. We don't are only beginning to understand the, all the complexity. But what is the most remarkable of all is that he made man. This living, thinking, walking social being who can talk and who can understand and love and fear and discover and worship. That there should be something like us and that God thought this up. He thought it all up. It's truly amazing and marvelous and ought to fill us with love and admiration for him. You think about people who do things um, like in you know, making movies and things like that. And they try to come up with different kinds of creatures and imaginative things. But they almost always have things like ears and eyes and 
various things, uh, speech, all of these things that, that is what God ha- has come up with. That there should be something like us and that God thought this up is, it should fill us with admiration for him. As the psalmist says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's true. The design, the imagination, and all that went into the creation of man, it's astounding. My daughter Elizabeth some time ago went to a, a weird musical production and there was an atheist there who asked her if there had been too much imagination in that whole presentation for her, that whole production. And I love the way that she replied. She said, not at all. It doesn't begin to compare with the imagination of God who made the world and the people who make productions like this. The atheist had to agree, at least that the world was far more incredible than that musical performance. He didn't necessarily agree that God made it, but that there was something far more incredible and amazing and imaginative than that musical production. So the first marvelous thing about the creation of man is simply that God did create him. And he came up with the whole idea and he carried it out. Second, it is marvelous that he made us male and female. He might have made some lonely, solitary creature, an individual that sat on the ground and sucked nutrients out of the earth and that uh, had no social interaction of any kind with anyone that was neither male nor female. He might have done that. By the way, let me point out here that when it says man, that he made man, that it speaks of both male and female. Verse, verse 27 says that God created man, male and female. Anyway, back to the point, God might have had only one man and that man might have been a solitary creature who was unable to reproduce or anything. Or if he could reproduce, he might have only been able to bring out clones that were just, just like himself. So there'd be a whole bunch of, of, of clones that looked exactly alike, copies of himself. But God did something that was much more marvelous and amazing than that. He made us male and female. We're told in chapter 2 that he made the woman of the rib of the man so that she was like him, yet different. And he made them so that they could bring forth children that were like them and yet different again. Not They're each male and female, but different. Each one individually different. Different persons, each with unique personalities and appearance, a remarkable diversity, yet all of them human beings. And he made them so that they fall into two classifications, male and female. Right away, God also established marriage so that one man and one woman would unite to share their lives together and to bring forth children. This is why you go to primitive societies or wherever you go, people have been isolated from other people for a long time and they have marriage there or something that's very much close to it. And he made it so that the man would be the head of the woman in marriage, not in a self-serving way by his design, but in a giving way, patterned after the way that God the Father is head of Christ and the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 11.3 
describes these relationships as the same sort when it says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. God's arrangement is marvelous, and it is our responsibility to live in it beautifully with his help rather than to try to rearrange the order and have you know, two men and one woman or two women and one man or, or man and man or woman and woman, whatever. What a beautiful thing it is the way God did it to have wives living in harmony with their husbands as leaders and husbands loving their wives so much that their leadership is exercised sacrificially for the good of their wife, to, to lead their, her and their, their household in God's ways. It's a beautiful thing that God designed. And, of this is, and, and all of this is beautifully social. We're social beings like God. It is so much more interesting this way. We have other people to share our experiences with, to worship with, to declare the praises of God to, to serve and to bless We can be a tremendous blessing to each other. We can do good to each other and make things for each other like meals and and artworks and houses and cars and phones. It's amazing and marvelous the way God did this. And that brings us to what is perhaps the most marvelous thing of all about God making us. Third, it is marvelous that he made us in his own image. Moses really highlights this when he writes about it in Genesis 1. All along the creation narrative, he speaks of God calling things that were not into being. But when we get to verse 26, something new is added. The Lord here begins to, as it were, consult with himself. God the Father consults with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. It says, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So there's a talking together this way. He's talking about about it uh, alerts us as readers that something special is going to happen here. God is beginning to talk about what he's going to do, that man should be made in God's image. It stands out as something that is extraordinary and something that is marvelous. And Moses really gets this. As he continues, we find him repeating this marvelous fact. The way you do when you're overwhelmed about something and amazed about something. You say it, say it over and over as if you're trying to, to grasp the, the, the significance of it. He's already told us in verse 26 that God made us in his image. But now in verse 27, he repeats it two more times. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Made in God's image. This is tremendous. Made in God's own image. Do you realize what this means? God had called the earth and all the animals and plants and fish into being. He had called the light and the seas and the mountains and the galaxies into being. And all these display his glory and majesty as their maker. But now he makes an actual image of himself. An image of his invisible self. Now, when you take a picture, that picture is an image of you. It looks like you. You might even point to a group picture and say, see that one there? That one's me. Even though it's not you, it's a picture of you. It's an image of you. 
So being made in God's image means that you look like him in some way. It means that you are a true representation of the invisible God. As a human being, you have the unique privilege of showing people what God is like as a visible image of the invisible God. Now, this, of course, does not mean that we share God's physical appearance because of a very simple reason. God does not have a physical appearance. God is pure spirit, and he doesn't have a body like we do. Now, Christ, of course, took a body to himself, and you have him sometimes even uh, appearing to Abraham and people like that in the form of human uh, flesh. But uh, he himself does not have a body in his divine nature. He created the material world. Nevertheless, your body parts are part of what it is to be the image of God in the same way that the photo paper is a part of an image of you. It's necessary for that image to to be there. You're not made of paper, but your image is made of photo paper, and the paper is needed for the image to represent you. In a similar way as God's image, we have arms and eyes and ears and mouths. While God does not have these appendages and organs, he sees everything. And as his image, he gave us eyes, you see, by which we see things. He does things like rescuing people or making the world's as it says in the scripture sometimes, with his mighty arm. So as his image, he gave us us arms. God doesn't really have arms like we do, but yet we have arms that represent that which actually reaches out, does things, takes things. We cannot do things on the same scale that he can because we're only creatures. But as his image, we can do things with our arms and eyes and ears that correspond to what God does. So your body is a necessary part of the image of God. It's not like that your body is something that can be dispensed with because it's not really part of the image of God. No, it's very much in the way that God did it. It's very The image wouldn't be there of God without the material aspect. The Catechism speaks of three general ways that man is God's image. It says that we are his image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. We know that Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness are part of the image of God because Paul the Apostle speaks of us being renewed in the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness in his letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. Uh, He doesn't speak of all three of them at the same time, but he speaks of each of those, one pair and then the other one by itself. So what are these three things? Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. The Catechism mentions them. Knowledge refers to our ability to know the truth and to understand reality. At the most basic level, we know things like we know the difference between a tree and a stone. And our knowledge is true. It's correct. It's parallel with God's knowledge. We know what God knows. A tree is a tree and a stone is a stone and they're different from each other. God knows much more than we do, but what we know is reflective of what he knows. 
the same, it is the same. We are able to share knowledge with each other by talking in a meaningful way. Speech is an amazing gift of God that he gave us. For instance, I just talked about a stone. You know what I'm talking about. I talked about a tree. You know what I'm talking about. I didn't have to show you one. And we know how to do things like plant corn or, or manufacture automobiles or, or figure out how the different organs in our bodies work. There are so many things that we can know. And when we know in truth, then we're thinking God's thoughts after him. And of course, the most important aspect of this knowledge is that we can know God and that we can know his will. We will never know all that there is to know about God, but we can truly know him and we can truly know his will. Just as you won't ever know everything about a tree or about a rock, no matter how much you study it and how deep your science goes, you'll never know all that God knows about that rock or that tree. How much more do we not know all about God? But what we do know about God can be what is every bit as true as what God knows about God. It's not as exhaustive and complete, but every bit is true. So knowledge is a marvelous part of what it is to be made in the image of God. And we should delight in that. Righteousness is the next way that the Catechism speaks of to describe how we are the image of God. Righteousness involves doing what is right. God made us upright. We are inescapably moral. So that even people who say, oh, I don't believe in any moral absolutes. As soon as somebody does something that offends them, then they begin to calm down on it and say they did wrong. Well, if there's no right and wrong, how could it be wrong? You see, God made us upright to be those who, who do what is just and who love one another. We were made to want to do right originally and to actually do right, even as reflective of the three persons of the Trinity who are always righteous in all that they do. God is righteous in all. Righteousness is a marvelous part of what it is to be made in the image of God. Even that the Father always loves the Son. The Son always loves the Father and does what's pleasing to Him. And the Holy Spirit does what's pleasing to the Father and the Son. Holiness, then, is, is the third way that the Catechism states that we're the image of God. This refers, holiness refers to our ability to be dedicated to God, devoted to Him as His servants and worshipers and admirers. We're able to offer our lives to Him in love. This is unique to us as men. The animals and plants do not worship God as we do. They aren't able to have this worshiping sense. In a sense, the three persons worship each other. The Son is devoted to the Father and praises Him. The Spirit praises the Father and the Son is devoted to them. We're able to join in this worship as God's image bearers in a way that is appropriate to our place as mere creatures. It involves doing what pleases God as the Son always does and as the Spirit always does to the Father. We were made with the ability to be all that we should be before Him, to be holy as He is holy, to be pure and undefiled. Truly, it is a marvelous thing that God has done in making man. So, so far we have seen three ways that it's marvelous. I said there were just three, but I've actually got more than three. 
But uh, just to review, marvelous that he made us all, marvelous that he made us made us at all, marvelous that he made us male and female, that we're social beings able to reproduce and so on, and marvelous that he made us after his own image. And now fourth, it is marvelous that he made us to have dominion over his creatures. That means that we were given power over animals and over nature. In Genesis 1.28, God bestows this power upon the man and the woman. It says, Genesis 1.28, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, by speaking these words, God not only gave them the authority of lordship, gave it to all of us, but also the power over these creatures and over the earth itself. We were created then with the ability to use the whole creation to serve our purposes. And they were, of course, good purposes as we were created righteous and holy. If you think about it, God has given us what are really God-like powers. We can actually make people in a way in that we can reproduce people who are made after God's image, this is reflective of God's ability to create. And we have almost magical powers where we can take certain things. We can take a seed and we can put it into the ground and watch it come up as a crop. Make a field of corn or potatoes, a vineyard or an apple orchard. God has given us the authority to be able to grow crops and to take care of them and to know how to do that sort of a thing. And God give us, gave us the ability simply to move about and to arrange things and to build things and to manufacture and organize things and to do it all in beautiful, helpful, and meaningful ways. We can build houses, and we can make cars, and we can produce movies, and we can deliver food all around the world. He endowed us with power in the likeness of his power, but yet very much reduced on a creaturely level. But originally, you see, we were not helpless before God's creation, but we had dominion over it. We still see that in many ways, but yet we're, and that's where we're going. You, You can see how very marvelous God's making of man is Truly, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. How we ought to praise God and how we ought to use all that we are to serve him and to bring glory to him. His making of us is is truly a marvelous thing. But I started alluding to this. There's a huge problem here. I'll be very blunt about it. Much of this doesn't appear to be true of what we've just talked about. All the things that we have seen in our catechism and in Genesis 1, 26-31 do not seem to be so. I mean, most high school teachers and university professors will tell you that, that God did not really make us, not in the way it says in the Bible. They'll tell you that scientific research indicates that we evolved from simpler forms of life until we became what we are today. Some will say that God used evolution 
but it really contradicts the whole idea of being made by God directly, especially of being made in his image and of having dominion over the earth when we were made, because the whole story of evolution requires death and suffering and being primitive creatures that were not God's image at all from the start. And the whole idea of being made male and female is challenged in our day. Increasingly, it is the opinion of those on the, on the uh, leading edge that our gender distinctions are not so distinct, as the Bible says, that there is the notion that a person can be a man on the inside and a woman on the outside or vice versa, and all sorts of other variations that are alleged. And when it comes to being the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, well, certainly not. If we know what true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness are, we, we certainly are not that. In place of knowledge, there is confusion of all kinds. We can't even agree about basic things. And in the place of righteousness, we have all sorts of immoral and malicious behavior. We don't always often do not agree about what's right and wrong. Every relationship that we have is plagued by selfishness and sin. There's war. There's oppression throughout the world. What What is this? We were created in righteousness. What, what has become of that? Instead of being holy, we're defiled. We can hardly be said to be truly dedicated to God. We're indifferent or even opposed to him in many cases. Some people don't even believe in God. It's not holy. Look around you. Do you see the beauty of our glorious creator shining in the human race? Look in your own heart and in your own life. Look at it honestly. What do you see? What words come out of your mouth that never should have been spoken? Are they righteous words? Are they always true words? Are they holy words? We're fallen into sin. The image of God is grossly distorted and corrupted. And dominion over the creatures and over the earth? Hardly that. The tiniest of creatures, bacteria or viruses, can make us sick and can even kill us. That's not dominion. You don't have dominion when a, when, when a, a little tiny virus can destroy you. There are destructive earthquakes on the big scale. We can't stop an earthquake. Hurricanes, tsunamis, droughts that destroy lives. And at last, where do we end up? Not in dominion over the earth. We were made of the dust of the ground and made to walk on the earth and have dominion. But now we're buried in the ground, dead. And we dissolve and the worms destroy our body six feet under in our graves. How then can we possibly affirm what our catechism says? That God made man, male and female, after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures because that's not what we're seeing. When we see nothing of the kind, when it doesn't comport with what we see around us today, how can we affirm something like that and say that's what we believe? We can say this because God has revealed something to us. He has revealed that we were made that way, but that now we are fallen. We're fallen into sin, and that brought ruin on us all. In other words, 
We were created just as our catechism says, just as Genesis 1 says, but now we're ruined by sin and by the consequent curse. The Bible is right when it says that we were created by God, male and female, in his image, with dominion over the creatures. But it is also right when it later declares that we are ruined by the fall. It is because of sin that our high school teachers and university professors and the researchers that they listen to have concluded that God did not create us. The Bible teaches in Romans 1 that as sinners, we are ungrateful to God as creator and we suppress the truth about him in unrighteousness. The whole story of evolution, it's a just-so story, is what scientists came up with in an effort to account for man's existence by natural processes. They said, we gotta, let's see if we can, we, we, we are going to eliminate God. They, they, they just did eliminate God and said, we're going to see how this could come about in a natural way without God. And they began to labor to try to figure out how that could be. The theory was, has so many holes in it, especially now. But for those who will not allow God as creator into their thinking, they don't have another option. They, just, just to use one example, there's no known mechanism in science for adding complexity to the genome. Yet, the blind assumption is that that's how everything came about. Everything. But if you close your mind and rule out the possibility of a a creator from the start, then you have no choice but to come up with blind assumptions like that. It's a huge assumption. And it it unravels the whole thing, especially now that we know all the complexity that is involved in our DNA and all of these things. You can't just have new information that appears. All you have is the rearrangement of information that can rearrange how we look and and features that we have, but not new, altogether new information coming out. And with the matter of male and female and all the gender confusion, well, really, this this is also part of the fall. And that in two ways. In rare cases where persons are born, male and female, with male and female body parts, it's a physical deformity, similar to being born with an extra finger or with a club foot or whatever it might be. It's a, it's, it's a defect. It's, a, it's not the way that uh, we, we were created to be. It means that something has gone wrong in the genes. It's, it doesn't mean that the individual himself has necessarily sinned, but it's a deformity that's part of the curse in general that God has put on mankind on account of sin. Um, people are, are born with all kinds of defects, and they are defects. Um, true that they can sometimes use these things and overcome. It doesn't make them to be wicked people or evil people. It just means that they have a handicap that they have to, to deal with. Um, and then the other thing, okay, that's a rare case where there's some kind of a, a confusion that they have both male and female parts. Very rare. Then, though, there is today, increasingly, gender dysphoria, the condition of feeling that one's emotional and psychological identity as male and female to be the opposite of one's biological sex. So this is a condition that some people experience. But feelings like these should be resisted rather than embraced 
because we know that God's word tells us that it's not true, that he made two genders. Someone may say, well, this could be part of the fall too. Well, I say there is that where you can have both male and female parts. But the thing is, is that the, the DNA of male and female, apart from confusion like that, very, very rare, is very, very distinct. We all need to know then that our feelings, as real as they may be, do not make what we feel to be true. We have to distinguish those things. And as for the image of God, the scriptures declare plainly that the whole human race has fallen into sin. So the reason that when we look at man today, we do not see the knowledge, righteousness, and holiness of God reflected in man as the image of God is because of sin. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7.29, Truly this only have I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We were made upright, we were made right, but we've fallen. We're still God's image in the way that a we're still a picture of him. Uh, but now we're a defiled, corrupted picture that grossly misrepresents him. Now you think about that, it makes us even more guilty for that to be so. Because it's one thing to be a picture of something else. Like if God made us to no longer be his image, like when we fell, we became an image of something else, then there wouldn't be nearly as much problem. But the fact that we were made in God's image and are still God's image, but now a misrepresentation of God makes it all the worse. In other words, I have the ability to be wise, but that means when I'm corrupt, I can be foolish. Wisdom reflects God. Folly, foolishness, is a distortion, a distorted reflection of God. But it's still a reflection of God. It's a wicked reflection of God that doesn't reflect him accurately. And so it incurs judgment. So to be his image and to misrepresent him is much worse than to merely be the image of something else. God made us marvelously in his image. It's a privilege. And then we corrupted that image. You know, for yourself, if someone paints a picture of you and it doesn't look like you, maybe, maybe it's not even very flattering, then you don't like it because it is an image of you, but you don't like it because it distorts the way you look. Or maybe, maybe it's flattering and you, you, like, you like the way it looks. But uh, it's, it's a bad picture. And you'd rather they did a picture of something else than to do a bad picture. And as to us having dominion, God took that from the human race as soon as Adam and Eve fell. He told Adam that in the day that he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he would surely die. And he did. We who are made to live and rule now die and are in bondage with creation. Romans 8 explains that the whole creation was cursed on account of us. The result is sickness and suffering and death. What we see now is not the way God made the world, but what he did to the world on account of our rebellion. Our whole society is in a tailspin right now because of the, a microscopic virus that, that comes from the earth and that comes from animals. 
all because we do not fear God. So it is true that what we see now in man is not at all what we see he was when he was first created. But that doesn't change the fact that in the beginning, God created us male and female in his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Now I want to add that there is a way for man to be restored to all that God created him to be. This is the good news. Jesus Christ has come. What we read in Colossians 1 is the firstborn of the new creation. Colossians 1.15 says of Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So you see that even though we're fallen into corruption and defilement, even though we're an ugly, distorted, twisted picture of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in human flesh, is neither corrupt nor defiled. He is the true, beautiful, perfect image of the living God. He is a true mirror in human flesh of what God is. In Hebrews 1.3, he is called the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. The Father declared repeatedly that he was pleased with him. Like when you go to get your driver's license and they take the picture of you and they say, is that one okay? And you say, "Eh." and then they take another one and you say, yeah, that one's okay. God is pleased when he sees his image in Christ. Mark 1.11, the voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So you see that Jesus is all that we were created to be as the image of God. But Jesus did not come to be a lone image bearer. He came to establish a whole kingdom of righteous, restored image bearers. To restore a whole people to be like God. That is the good news that was promised in the Old Testament and announced in the New, that the kingdom of righteousness was coming, it said in the Old Testament, and has come with Jesus. He went everywhere preaching the good news that the kingdom was at hand. There were no righteous persons to enter this kingdom of righteousness, but Jesus made it clear that he came to restore sinners to righteousness. He said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Look at Colossians 1.18. It, it says that he is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. He is the first righteous person in this kingdom, and he is the one who establishes this kingdom, but he establishes it for the purpose of bringing others into it. The whole church whom he calls by grace to enter in and be reconciled to God is what he came to save. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 goes on to explain, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, 
and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. He actually takes sinful, fallen human men and women and restores them to what God made them to be in the first place. He shed his blood on the cross to make that happen, to accomplish this. He died for the forgiveness of our sins. And as a result, and the result is that sinful men and women who were ruined are restored to God. Paul goes on to say this in Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister." Isn't that wonderful news? It is by faith, in other words, that you trust him to do it. It's by faith. So you look to him. You can't restore yourself. You can't atone for your sin. You can't restore yourself to to God's perfect image again. But you are saved by looking to Jesus to do it. And he does do it. It's not hopeless. So very encouraging. Where else can we go? What else can we do? Romans 8.29 declares that it is your destiny now if you're among those who have been called. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So he's going to make us to be conformed to the image of God, just like he is. You're destined to be the perfect image of God that Jesus already is. And even now, the Lord is at work in you to restore his image in you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. God is revealed to us in Christ. He's unveiled. And we look upon him and we see not what we saw in the law where we had written code of commandments, but now we see it lived out in Jesus Christ. We see the beauty and we we are called to love as he loved and to serve as he served. God's image is being restored in us as we look upon Jesus Christ. We're being changed into that likeness. And I must not fail to declare to you that those who enter this kingdom of righteousness will also be given dominion again. In this world, we still see, we still have to suffer, even as Jesus, the firstborn, had to suffer in this world. But in glory, dominion will be restored to us in Jesus Christ. Even though everything is not put into subjection to man yet, Jesus is already exalted in glory. He has authority. Hebrews speaks of this in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, where it, says to the, the, where it says to the Lord concerning man, You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. 
For in that he put all in subjection under his feet, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Do you see the problem? Everything is not put under man, not yet. We still must live with the consequences of the fall. But verse 9 adds that Jesus the firstborn is already glorified. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. He's resurrected from the dead. He's sitting at God's right hand. So our hope is that as Jesus is raised and glorified, so will we, his body, be raised and glorified. Romans 8.17 explains that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We have the same inheritance. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. By identifying with him, it causes us to suffer in this world. But by identifying with him, even though it brings ridicule and persecution in the world, it prepares you to receive glory with him. And that glory includes the restoration of dominion over all things on the day that our bodies are resurrected. They will be also, we will be fully redeemed. The whole creation will be redeemed. Think about when Jesus was here. He showed dominion over sickness and death and storms and all of those things. The dominion that we're all going to share in so that those things will no longer harm us. In Romans 8, Paul goes on to say, Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Like the creation is, is waiting for us to be brought to that perfection and to be made like Christ because then the whole creation is going to be changed, transformed. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So everything in creation is going to be put back in its place under man, and man is going to be restored to his place as in the image of God, knowledgeable, righteous, and holy. For we know, it says, that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. It's, it's wanting to come forth, wanting to be restored again. Not only that, but we also, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have the beginning of that, that work of the Spirit that's changed us so that we've come to Christ, we begin to have the fruits of the Spirit, that even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. When the resurrection comes at the last day, we who are in Christ will fully regain dominion of the earth. So we'll be renewed in the image, perfectly renewed in the image of God as far as knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And we'll have dominion again. There will be no more death, no more famine, no more shortages. These, there will be no more destructive microscopic viruses that bring our whole society down. But, with, but you see, now without these, we'd never fear God. We'd never turn to him. But we have these now, and it's necessary 
that we be subjected to this, but yet we look with hope to what God has promised in the future. So you see that the creation of man was a marvelous thing. God created him, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. And even though this glory of man is greatly marred and ruined by the fall, it has been restored in Jesus Christ. And it will be fully restored in all those who enter his kingdom by faith. This is the glorious destiny of all of you who have loved his appearing. But if you do not come to him for life, then you will die in your sin and shame, and your misery and your corruption will be multiplied beyond measure. You think you don't have dominion now, you will have much less dominion when you are brought into the place of punishment in the end. But what glory awaits for those who are joint heirs with Christ, who have come to him to be rescued and delivered and saved and lifted up, all because he has come to restore us and has gone to the cross to pay for our sins. Please stand and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you created us in your very own image, male and female, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Father, what a marvelous thing it was. How clearly we are told of these things in your word. How often these things are repeated. We thank you, O Lord, that the scriptures set before us that all of these things are going to be restored again, though they will be better than they were, because now we have the unchanging Lord Jesus Christ, who is, who is our master rather than the changeable Adam. We thank you that Jesus was one who was such a person that he would never sin, that he would never turn away from you, that he would continue steadfastly. And now, Lord, all of our hope and our security is in him. We thank you that he is the very son of God, the, the, the person who is the son of God and who also now has become human flesh, that he might represent us and, and be the, the, the firstborn of the new creation. Father, we pray that we would aspire to have all the fullness that is in Jesus Christ, that we would aspire to be uh, renewed in the, in the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, that we would desire, Lord, to have dominion over the, the whole creation again, to have that restored. Father, that's one that we don't have too much problem with uh, striving for as we try to gain mastery over the world and to bring it into subjection and You've given us a lot of um, mercy so that we're able to do many things that we can sustain our lives here for a time. But Father, none of us are able to attain immortality. That's something that only you are able to give us. And we see, Lord, how how weak and how, how small we are, Lord, how easily we could be taken down. Just think of all the different ways, Lord, that, that we could be wiped out and ruined. But Lord, we praise you that, that we're in your hands and that you have a plan and you have a purpose. And you've told us that that plan is that we will be renewed in likeness to the one who created us. That we will awake with your likeness and we will see you in glory. Lord, how we look forward to, to that, that great restoration. We confess, Lord, to you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
And yet, Lord, we have sought out many schemes. Have mercy and forgive us, Lord, and bring that grace that restores us and spread it through all the earth, Lord, and help help us to carry the message of the gospel and the hope that is ours to the nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now receive the blessing of the Lord our God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen.